After I'm around Ed Jellif, who speaks at the men's retreat, um, I often feel like I've become Mr. Rogers, and he has become Animal, the drummer for the Muppets. <laughs> uh, and what's ironic about that is if you've been around long enough, you know that that's how they compared me to my predecessor. He was Mr. Rogers, and I was Animal, the drummer. So it's kind of funny how, how things change. So for those of you that are joining us, we're so glad that you're here today. I need to fix my mic. There we go. We're so glad that you're here today. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. We're thankful for that. And if you've just come back, we're so glad you're back. Um, what we're doing is, uh, because of the P word, we kind of started a series of Bible stories because we, at the time, weren't holding Sunday school. And so we've just been doing a series of Bible stories for everybody. And we find ourselves uh, having moved up to the Ten Commandments, and we're taking them one at a time. Last week, we did the first commandment. Today, we're doing the second commandment. So I would encourage you, if you would, to open your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. That is where we'll be. And if you have a Bible app and you click the little menu and look for an event near you, you'll find uh, the text and a little bit of an outline there, and that can be helpful to you. Uh, as I mentioned, we've been covering some Bible stories. We're on the Ten Commandments. The second one, as I was uh, preparing for it, uh, I realized, whoa, I think we've bitten off more than we can chew because I'm going to need like 20 sermons to encapsulate this, but I'm not going to do that to you. I'm just going to do one. It would take forever, though, to exhaust it, I think. It says a lot in very few words. And I think about that, and I think, why is it that this says so much? It's a commandment about idols. Why is it that it says so much? And I think it might be because of something that Nietzsche said. He said, there are more idols in this world than there are realities, uh, that's probably true. It might be the only thing I've ever read that Nietzsche said that I agreed with, um, that there are. We just seem to, we kind of make idols. And John Calvin, who I, I, I have a lot more respect for, uh, he said this. He said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And when I looked at that, I said, did Calvin really, he wrote hundreds of years, hundreds of years ago, did he write idol factory? He did. He wrote it in Latin, though. But the word that was there was like perpetuum, um, and I can't remember the word for factory, but it was similar to the English word. That's exactly what he's saying, that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. I would say to you in my observation and my personal experience, that is indeed the case. We can make an idol out of everything. Consider this list. Success, respect, money, personal freedom being known, your family, your automobile, your reputation, your country, power, your heritage, your rights, your house, your political heroes, your sports team, your job. Anything can become an idol. Sadly, even the good things in life can become an idol in our life. Just over 10 years ago, a gentleman named Timothy Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, wrote another good book. Uh, he's just an excellent writer. This book is called Counterfeit Gods. The subtitle of it is The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. It was such a good book that I bought it this week and I was listening to it as an audio book. I got about three-fourths of the way through it and said, I think I need to read this in print. So then I went and bought it in print. And as I'm looking at it, I thought, this is what we need to do in men's group on Saturday mornings because this book is just so fantastic. Guys, I invite you to join us if you've never come to the 730 meeting at Dutch Pantry on Saturday mornings. Sign up on the sign-up sheet so we know you're coming and we can make sure you're alerted if we cancel. 
Um, this is a great book. It's, it's not hard to read. If you're not a reader, don't let that worry you. A lot of us aren't, um, but it's, it's just a, an excellent book that we, we can talk together about. Counterfeit Gods. Such a good book that today I'm going to be sharing at least three quotations from this book with you as I talk about this message. But the most authoritative thing I'll share with you is the actual commandment. So if you would, open your Bibles to Exodus 20, and we'll read just three verses, four, five, and six. You shall not make for yourself an image in any form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You're reading that and you're saying, You might need 10 or 20 sermons to cover that, Pastor Steve. (laughs) I'm not going to do that, though. What I want to do is actually look at the commandment and notice that it kind of comes to us in two parts. The first part is don't make idols out of anything. The second part is don't, don't bow down and worship them. I want to talk to you about that first part. Don't make idols. It says right there in verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. If that fourth verse was all we had of this commandment, if it was the substance of the commandment, let's think about the things you'd need to get rid of. We need to get rid of, honey, that painting, that Thomas Kincaid painting that's above our couch. That's got to go. We need to get rid of those wood carvings of ducks and loons that my father made before he passed away. Those have to go. And that little statue of an angel that's sitting on our counter, I'm sorry, on our shelves there in the study, that has to go. No, it doesn't. The commandment isn't about the making of the image. And I'll show that to you scripturally. The tabernacle of God and the temple of God that followed that had an abundance of such things. I'm going to read to you from 1 Kings 6.23, Listen as I read, and this is talking about the tabernacle of God. These are his instructions on how it should be made, or how it was to be made. For the inner sanctuary, he made a pair of cherubim. Cherubim are angels. So he's got a figure of an angel. He made a pair of cherubim out of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. One wing of the first cherubim was five cubits long, and the other wing was five cubits long. The 10 cubits, they were 10 cubits from wingtip to wingtip. The second cherub also measured 10 cubits. For the two cherubim were identical in size and shape. The height of each cherub was 10 cubits. (laughs) Now, I don't know if you know what a cubit is, but it's about 18 inches. So those things were about 18 feet high. They were pretty big, pretty big. They were carved images, graven images, put in the temple of God at the instruction of God. Must not be about the images. Let me give you another passage, just in case you're still wondering. There's this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. You've seen the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. The Ark of the Covenant was commanded by God to be made, and the thing that was to be put in, one of three things that was to be put in this box of the covenant, was one of those three things was the Ten Commandments. This very commandment was inside a box that, by the way, had two cherubim on it. Exodus 25, 18, make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Golden angels, fashioned by human hand, placed on the Ark of the Covenant at God's instruction. You're beginning to see that the commandment is not about images or even the making of images. 
I say this because I've met people who are troubled when they see artistic expression in churches. They're bothered by that. Statues, paintings, stained glass. What's that doing there? Seems like a graven image to me. History calls those people iconoclasts. The first four letters are icon. Iconoclasts in church history destroyed such statues and paintings, particularly during the Reformation. They destroyed the icons, things that represented something else. Like on your phone, the icon that looks like like a mail envelope represents your email. Well, these icons represented something else, so they destroyed them. But I want to say to you that icons really populate churches around the world. Whether it's a statue in a church maybe in Italy, or it's a wooden cross on the wall right behind me, there's an icon. It can't be that the problem is a figure. It's not. The problem comes to light in the second part of the commandment where it says, don't worship that which has been created. Don't bow down to it. You, know, you shall not bow down, verse 5 says, or worship them. So that means we don't pray to anyone except God. I called up my bank this week. They have new software in place. And I wanted to talk to a software developer because I was getting about 20 emails a day from my bank. <laughs> um, all I could do, though, was talk to the person on the other end of the phone. Um, thank you for your concern, Mr. Shields. I'll relay that to the development team. Yeah, that didn't work. I got up this morning, there's six new emails in my inbox from my bank. I really want to talk to someone who can do something. I really want to talk to the developer. Thank you, Mr. Shields. We'll relay your message to the development team. <laughs> you don't have that problem with God. You don't have to talk to some intermediator. You don't have to talk to some idol. Absolutely don't do that. You don't even have to get someone else to pray for you, though I do that all the time personally. Would you please pray for me about this? The Bible says you can go straight to him. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us there's one God and there's one mediator, that is someone to go between, between God and mankind, and that one is the man Christ Jesus. You can go right to the developer. You don't have to go in between. We pray, we don't pray to anyone but God. And this commandment is why we do not regard earthly things as holy. I've not seen this for a long time, <laughs> but, uh, but that probably just means we're due for it in the news, right? Every now and then there's someone who decides that they saw Jesus or an angel or Mary show up in a really strange place. And if you remember some of these, there's Jesus on a pancake in a cowgirl cafe. <laughs> there he is, right? And then there's Jesus on the bottom of a clothes iron in Massachusetts. If I'm Jesus, that's exactly where I'm planning to show up, on the bottom of a clothes iron. And then there's the Virgin Mary on a grilled cheese sandwich. She drew $20,000 on eBay before eBay finally shut that down. Yeah, No, we don't regard those kinds of things as holy. We don't flock to those things and ask them to take care of our problems. We talk to God. We don't make idols of any created thing. We don't worship any created thing. Tim Keller, in the book I mentioned earlier, Counterfeit Gods, defines an idol this way. He says, an idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it. Therefore, it drives us to break rules we once honored to the harm of ourselves and to the harm of others in order to get it. 
An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, you feel your life would hardly be worth living. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. We have a slogan at Kermansville Alliance. Real God, real life, real people. We believe we worship a real God. We believe we deal with real life issues and struggles and he helps us in it. We believe it's important to be real people and not lie about who we are. So with that third thing in mind, let me tell you some idols that I've had struggles with. One of the idols that I've had struggles with in my life is money. I have idolized money, placing attention on it above other important things, even the things of God. I have idolized pleasure, placing my free time and my desire for pleasure, my me time, above following Jesus. I have idolized my family. My wife probably doesn't feel this way, but I have idolized her. And I have idolized my children. And I have idolized my grandchildren. I share those with you to help you see the almost certainty that you have struggled with the same kinds of things. And if you say, nah, I haven't struggled with any of that kind of thing, then maybe you're idolizing this imaginary person you think you are. (laughs) That might be it, right? You see, breaking the second commandment is probably more common than uh, you might have supposed. And there are some deep problems with idolatry. Keller notes the Bible uses three basic metaphors to talk about how people relate to the idols in their hearts. And those three are they love the idol, they trust the idol, and they obey the idol. It's true. The Bible indicates that that which you love may very well be an idol, and Keller calls that the marital metaphor. It's like marriage. You know, we're supposed to love God with all we are. You see that in the Shema, which may have been the most memorized passage of Scripture for the Jews before uh, Christ was born in Bethlehem. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, our our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Jesus says that's the first and greatest commandment. Love God with all you are. Idolatry is loving something or someone else more than you love God, in place of God. And that is why when the Bible speaks of idolatry, it often connects it with a, a term that sounds similar, adultery. Isn't that interesting? They sound similar. Because God is faithful and holds his covenant faithfully with his people. He loves us nonstop, but we can become unfaithful. And we can kind of cheat on him in ways that are like adultery. That's the metaphor. And from God's perspective, idols are something that we love instead of, in place of him. Listen, that doesn't mean... (laughs) that everything you love is something you idolize. I mean, it's okay to say, I love my smartphone. That's all right. It's okay to say, in fact, I hope you do say, I love my church. That's a good thing to do. And it's essential that you love your family. But when we love any of those kinds of things in place of God, what was that list? Success, respect, money, personal freedom, being known, your family, your automobile, your reputation, your country, your power, your heritage, your rights, your house, your political heroes, your sports team, your job, 
those things, when we love them above, those become idols. The second biblical metaphor, the first is that which we love. The second biblical metaphor teaches us that that which we trust can become an idol. And Keller calls this a political idol. Now listen, I'm going to say a sentence twice because I don't want you to miss it. Ready? He wrote this over 10 years ago. So he's not talking about the current political scene. And those of you who know me know that when I am here, I don't talk politics. I am apolitical. So I'm not making a statement, nor is he. We're talking about idols. Politics is a metaphor to help us understand them. Let me read from his book, half a dozen sentences. We can locate idols by looking at our most unyielding emotions. What makes you uncontrollably angry, anxious, or despondent? One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of our life. And when we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. This may be a reason so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. Wow. Let me say it a second time. He wrote that over a decade ago. But this metaphor of the idol, that which you trust, it's older than a decade. It's not about politics. It's a metaphor. It's an illustration. And the point that is being made is that we need to see (laughs) that we trust whatever it is we idolize. And therefore, it controls us. Idols control us so much that we make decisions we would never in our right mind make were it not for the idolization. That's just a good sentence. I want to say it again. Idols we trust control us so much that we make decisions we would never make without the idolization. And the loss of such the loss associated with such idolization can be heartbreaking. Believers don't trust idols. We're supposed to trust in the Lord. Many of you maybe hold this as your key verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in him with all your heart. We trust in the perfections of God. It's kind of an old-time theologian way of saying we trust that God has his act together. He's perfect in every way. Why would I trust in anyone but him? We trust in the power of God. There is nothing that he cannot do. Why would I trust in anyone except for him? We trust in the love of God. Jesus speaks of that in John 10, in verse 11, when he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then just four chapters later, in chapter 15, five chapters later, he he remarks, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends. He says, we trust the love of God. We don't need to trust idols. We trust the one who loves us. So the first metaphor, the marriage one, that which you love can be an idol. The second metaphor, the political one, that which you trust can be a metaphor. And the third metaphor says that which you obey can be an idol. Did I get my nouns mixed up a couple seconds ago there? No? Yeah, let me back up. I have anomic aphasia. That means you can't think of nouns when you mean to and you get them mixed up. The only noun I can always remember is the noun anomic aphasia. 
<laughs> so let me do it again. We don't need idols. We trust in the love of God. So we don't need... Let me just keep going. Because I think that sometimes when people mix up their nouns, you can fix it in your head, right? I'm just trusting you'll do that. Here's the third metaphor. That which you obey can be an idol. How? Well, if my job is an idol, <laughs> then I don't want to take a vacation because I've got to obey my idol. And my idol says, work. Or if my idol is sports, then playing the game is my first priority and I need to obey my idol. And if my idol is money, you get the point, right? You get the point. And although one of the adjectives that you find in front of the word idol, and this is so ironic, one of the adjectives that you find over and over again in front of the word idol is dumb. And it doesn't mean dumb like stupid. It means dumb like mute, unable to speak. We don't worship dumb idols who cannot speak. We, speak, we worship the Lord who is able to speak. One of the, that, that word, dumb idols, how ironic is it then that we listen to them and we obey them? And we let our job, and we let sports, and we let our money speak to us about how we should live. (laughs) Why would I give heed to something that can't even speak? So what do you do about them? What do I do with these idols? Pastor Steve, I think you made your point. You know, the got milk thing? Got idols. Yeah, I do. Right? So how do I put them away? I want to give you three pieces of counsel. Number one, Destroy them if you can. Destroy them if you can. That's what the ancient followers of God did. They smashed the idols. They chopped down the Asherah poles. Destroy them if you can. Now, when I say destroy them if you can, I think you might know what I mean because there are some idols that you ought not destroy. (laughs) There are good things things that it would actually be a sin to destroy that you might idolize. For example, your family. Don't destroy your family if it's your idol. Or maybe your reputation. Don't destroy your reputation, right? Maybe your house. Don't destroy that. But other things that may be an idol, you may have to take radical action and get it out of your life. Destroy them. Number two, those that you can't destroy reprioritize your life. I'll tell you about my, uh, the guy who lived in the dorm next to me when I was in college. He was a believer. He was a great guitar player. I wished I could play guitar like Terry. He played really well, and, uh, <laughs> and any time that we had a get-together, Terry brought his guitar. Oh, Terry, man, you play so well. It's just so good. We really love having you bring your guitar. That's great. One day I went into Terry's room, and his guitar wasn't where it always was either leaning right against his bed or leaning right against his desk. In fact, his guitar was not in sight. The third place it would be is in his lap, right? And I said, Terry, where's your guitar? And he said, it's over there in the case. I said, what's going on? And he told me this. In my heart, he said, I had made an idol of the acclaim I was receiving from playing the guitar. I loved it when people said, wow, you're a great guitarist, Terry. And so I put it where it's a little more work to get to it. I reprioritized. And I don't go to parties with my guitar anymore. I just go as Terry. Hmm. Good counsel, right? Good counsel. Destroy them if you can. Reprioritize your life otherwise. What's in your life that needs reprioritized? 
You got any? Third, set aside Christ as Lord. But in your hearts, Peter says, revere Christ as Lord. Before I was born in 1959, I wasn't born in 1959. <laughs> Say it again. In 1959, before I was born, there were a group of musicians that had a top 40 hit. I'd like to sing that for you right now, but I think too much of you to expose you to such torment. I am no Terry. Oh, wow, the worship leader. <laughs> oh, Tommy. <laughs> when do I do your wedding, buddy? <laughs> His fiance said, I didn't clap, Pastor Steve. In 1959, before I was born, some musicians had a hit that went like this. You might recognize the words. My love must be some kind of blind love. I can't see anyone but you. Are there stars out tonight? I don't know if it's cloudy or bright. I only have eyes for you, dear. The moon may be high, but I can't see a thing in the sky. I only have eyes for you. I don't know if we're in a garden or on a crowded avenue. You are here. So am I. Maybe millions of people go by, but they all disappear from view. For I only have eyes for you. That is what God wants to come from this commandment. That you only have eyes for him, for Jesus. That you and I, (laughs) that we would rid ourselves of the idea that he is anything less than all-sufficient. And our complete allegiance, our complete trust, our complete love, and our complete obedience would be at his feet and nowhere else. I want to pray that that would be the case in all our lives. So would you unite your heart in prayer with me? You know what? Let's stand while we pray. Shall we do that? Thanks, Harry. I forgot to have him stand, but when I saw you going up, I'm saying, yeah, thanks. So here's what we're doing. Let's kind of regroup our thoughts for a minute. Because that was really funny when Drew clapped. (laughs) Okay, here's what you're doing. I'd like to ask you to think, are there idols in my life that I need to destroy? And then I want to ask you to talk to God about that. Because in and of yourself, you probably, you're, I've destroyed idols in my own strength and gone right down the store and bought another one. You know what I'm saying? So you need the power of the Spirit of God to do that. So that's what we're asking him for. God, there's an idol I need to destroy. As we unite our hearts together, as Pastor sees praying, give me the strength to do that. I really want to do that. Or is it a reprioritization thing? And that can be really valuable, but that can actually be harder sometimes because it's just in the case right over there on the other side of the dorm room, right? But is there a reprioritization you need to make? And if there is, God, give me the wisdom to know how to do that and give me the, and give me the strength to do that. And have you set aside Christ as Lord? Do you only have eyes for him? We're going to pray those three things would be happening in our lives. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your love for us. We thank you, Father, that you demonstrated your own lovingness while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful for your presence among us today and for your abiding presence inside of us that you, Spirit of God, enable us to do what we otherwise could never hope to do. We come to you as people 
who struggle with idol worship. Our hearts are idol factories. So we would ask your forgiveness for that. Bring to our minds things that must leave our lives and give us the strength to destroy them if that is what needs to happen. Beyond that, if that is not what needs to happen, then show us how to reprioritize those in our life, our schedule, our passions, our interests, our hobbies, our families, good things. Help us just reprioritize them in a way that leaves no doubt in our mind that you're first and they are next somewhere. May we (laughs) have a love for you that we set aside Christ as Lord so that though the moon may be high and millions of people go by, they all disappear from view. May we only have eyes for you. This is what we want. And this is what you want. This isn't a prayer like God when we say, if it's your will, it is your will. Make it happen in Christ's name. Amen.